Walk on, walk on with Bill Mesnick in your heart, and you'll always put on a stack of 45s. <laughs> you'll never walk alone. You're in rare form. I am beginning the day. It's a new day. It's a new episode of uh, Put on a Stack of 45s with your pal Bill Mesnick out in California, Rich Buckland here in Florida. Man, the weather's hot. The world is falling apart, but we don't care. You know why? Because we got 45 RPM records. We fling them all over the place. We put them on the turntable. We're inspired. We get until this, they melt. Until they melt. We get inspired, we got desire, our hearts are on fire, we're like in a midnight choir. And uh, can you find anything else that rhymes with that? Um, we're going higher and higher. We're going higher and higher like Jackie Wilson. Your love. Keeps lifting me higher, and we're going to get lifted today, my friend. So let's, how about a little hint? How about a little hint? 45 RPM. This, this is really, uh, here's another victim of the, uh, of the uh, revolution created by these imbeciles, the Beatles. Uh, you remember the Beatles, right? The Beatles. The be- yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the monkeys were so much better. I, don't, I still don't understand that. I still don't get that whole thing. But, uh, of course, 1963, seminal year, seminal year, because everything is going topsy-turvy as the the Fab Four are integrating our senses. But yet there is a gentleman, a gentleman who is stated to be the seminal influence of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jeff Beck, Dickie Betts, Warren Haynes, Ray Benson, Adrian Ballou, Bootsy Collins. Holy shit. Mike Bloomfield, Jerry Garcia, Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards, Jimmy Page, and Danny Gatton, the great Danny Gatton. What a roster. Just, I wonder who this could be. Just for beginners, just for beginners, that's a list of people who admit to being influenced. Clapton, of course, will never admit to being influenced by anybody. But we're talking about a gentleman named Lonnie McIntosh. And you will know him as Lonnie Mack. The Wham Man. Recorded recorded what many believe to be the essential, one of the ten most essential recordings. Uh, It's called Wham. Out of uh, Cincinnati, Fraternity Records, little label produces this remarkable piece of work. And the B-side was? What was the B-side? Susie Q. Oh, the Dale Hawkins. Uh, you, know, you, can't, you, know, you can't go wrong with Dale Hawkins, right? And also, it's got that little beat that, that, that Lonnie enjoyed so much. But um, so, so you got those influences. So you got that going for you. And then in 1968, Rolling Stone writes, it is truly the voice of Lonnie Mack that sets him apart. Primarily, oh, isn't that interesting? A, primarily a gospel singer, sincerity and intensity that is hard to find anywhere. Where do you begin? Because the man. Okay, I, I'll begin. I'll begin because for the music nerds out there, for the tech heads, I just want to talk a little bit about the Lonnie Mac signature sound. 
So, I mean, yes, vocalist, absolutely. Um, but the sound that he created with his flying V guitar. 1958 Gibson. 1958 Gibson with the Bigsby tremolo bar called the Whammy Bar. And I just want to just give you a little background. Paul Bigsby in the 1940s was a motorcycle mechanic who built motorcycles and he switched from that to making musical instruments and he made one of the first ones for Merle Travis who I guess was a customer came in, made a sketch of a guitar said, do you think you can build this? Bigsby said, I can build anything so he builds this guitar and he creates this this device called the Whammy Bar, which Lonnie Mack became associated with. This, the song is called Wham! that we're playing today. The sound, that buzzin' bee sound, was made by him, you know, shimming that Whammy Bar up and down. He had an, a special amp, too, called the Magnetone 460, which was a tube-driven let with a Leslie speaker. So it had this watery sound. So he created this signature sound that no one else had. And of course, as you said uh, before, well, you were talking about his vocal uh, stylings, but he, when he, his first record was Memphis and he was, he was noted for his speed, accuracy and aggression. Um, so that fascinates me and I, the sort of the, the, the technical specifications of how this all came about of course that doesn't account for his unbelievable um, technical finger abilities and soul well that's a whole other form of, that's a whole other prowess and of course Jimi Hendrix is given the um, is given the props particularly as a result of that Monterey Pop performance of Wild Thing, his use of the whammy bar, his use of every um, fiery antic that he could put on display. Um, Lonnie Mack's type of showmanship was was roadhouse showmanship. This is a guy who came straight out of Indiana and um, at 13 years old begins, you know, be, begins understanding the meaning of this instrument. Um, he's exposed to many different types of music, and that's what allowed his career to go on past the expiration date, the expiration date being the British invasion, because it was short. Right, and his records went out of print. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he was making his living touring, uh, basically. Um until Stevie Ray, until he moved to Austin in 1985, and sort of, you know, started to collaborate with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, what he had to do is, you know, they've got this. You know, who knows it at the time? You know, it's kind of like uh, until you get the call from the Smithsonian that we're putting this piece in a hundred years later. You know, who knows that what you created in that moment is going to be historically viable forever. So while these guys have that album uh, available, 
they're opening up for acts like Dick and Dee Dee. They have to hit the road, and they have to be, uh, they're not headliners. They are not headliners by any stretch of the imagination. They don't even get headline attention until a 1985 Carnegie Hall concert, which includes Roy Buchanan and Albert Collins. Love those guys. Love uh, Roy Buchanan's one of my favorites. I mean, he's another. Um, he, he, he's another essential and uh, never All but ha- forgotten. Yeah, never had a n- never had a top ten hit record. Of course, I mean, along with the likes of a, of a Danny Gatton and so many other guitarists that we could talk about who have been Look so. Look up "Sweet Dreams." Influential. Yes, yeah. his, his recording of "Sweet Dreams." Yeah. Look at the culture. The culture basically gives you Eric Clapton records like Wonderful Tonight. And um, you are part of this higher uh, elite culture that specifies you as not only what is called God. They would write Eric Clapton as God in the 60s um, overseas. But who was truly the uh, who was truly the Lord? in voice and in his ability, according to Stevie Ray Vaughan, to be able to convey every, Stevie Ray Vaughan took every element, he learned every teaching, and it created that immaculate career that was so unfortunately cut short. And you can hear Lonnie Mack so intensely in Stevie Ray Vaughan's playing.
Well, it's nice in that YouTube clip to see them playing Wham! together. Well, he moved to, well, Lonnie moved to Austin in order to asso- affiliate himself with Stevie Ray in a more, a more regular basis. So these were moves that were essential if he was going to continue. Um, you know, you take it But as in fo- 71, and this is the record that you turned me on to, in 71, he collaborates with Don Nix. For one song, on- just on one song. What? Just on one song. Well, Don Nix wrote four of the songs on the hills of Indiana. Yeah, but he only performs, sings on one song. Right. No, I mean, uh, Lonnie is the singer. But he, the the material. And, and it's interesting, we did a show on Link Ray, who also was a guitar hero, early guitar hero, who also, during this time or thereabouts, sort of went soft singer-songwriter mode. And I don't think either one of these guys really connected um, when they tried to do that. Well, I think that if you're going to... Reminds me of P.F. Sloan as well, which we also did a show on very early on, talking about Raised on Records. Um, You know, it's a beautiful record. And, and uh, I'm talking about Hills of Indiana. It's a beautiful record, and there's a lot of great musicians and great songwriters being covered. But there is a kind of um, mid-tempo sameness to it. Well, what they're trying to do in 1971 is they're trying to appeal to the marketplace, and they're trying mm-hmm. to go uh, rock with Asphalt Outlaw Hero. You're trying to go country with one of the finest Mickey Newberry songs and one of the finest country songs ever written, maybe one of the finest songs ever written, she even woke me up to say goodbye, one of the most essential pieces of musical poetry I've ever heard. Um, you've got three angels on which Don Nix does the lead vocal, this acoustic uh, prayer session, and that's how the, the album ends with this acoustic prayer session. You've got the song The Hills of Indiana. He covers Dylan's The Man and Me, um, there's an Talk about Bicycle Annie. That's the one, that's the cut that you uh, were fascinated by. So the one that stuck with me over the years was this tune that implemented pedal steel guitar, a ballad called Bicycle Annie, about a homeless woman. streets of Austin every night and day pushing an old bicycle as she goes along her way all her earthly she has tied up on the back who walked the streets of Austin and she had all of her earthly belongings on her bicycle and she was a well-known figure um, in Austin 
Choctaw Indian. Um, and I'm getting more and more curious as we are getting closer to doing this program. And I'm thinking about that song. And now, understanding I have the technology to actually get more information, I discover that, yes, there was a Bicycle Annie. And Bicycle Annie was also the first woman to ever run for president of the United States. She was, That's a fascinating part of the story. She went to law school. She was quite educated, but she had some mental health problems, family members say, that led her to be uh, given a room in Austin where she lived. Uh, out her life, and she was known for being seen riding her bicycle all around uh, the university in Austin. Austin. It's an incredible story after all these years, thinking that I first heard the song in 1971, and due to the internet and my mind going, yeah, now I can find out more about Bicycle Annie. Yeah, yeah. She was an actual human being. And the song presents a great deal of mythology, stating that she uh, she got into this condition as a result of a love affair gone wrong because her family rejected her suitor. But it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. It's in the Delta Dawn tradition. It's a, yeah, it is. It's in the Delta Dawn tradition, except there was something so exquisitely heartbreaking about this and Lonnie Mack's telling of it that it stuck with me forever. So... That was the song on Hills of Indiana that captured me. The thing about the thing about Hills of Indiana, as I listened to the whole thing, I there was precious little guitar work. Yeah, because that's not being sold. What they're selling is his vocal style. No, I understand that. Country understand rock that, is the Burrito yeah. Brothers have already. He's the Wham stopped. Man. He's the Wham Man. But <laughs> but look at what look at what marketing has already produced. It's already produced the elements. Yeah, but of, how did the marketing work out? Well, you don't know until you take the shot. <laughs> That's right. Well, everybody was trying to jump on that singer-songwriter bandwagon. Well, not just singer-songwriter bandwagon. It's a it's a country rock bandwagon that gave us the Burrito Brothers and the Birds and sure. Poco, and Poco. Sure. And there was this. In the old, Wikipedia page, they say that it was heavily influenced by the band. Uh, although, I'm not quite hearing that. No, I'm not quite hearing it, but what I am hearing is an intention in the mix of material to attempt to provide this um, this bare bones soulful styling as you hear in Three Angels. I mean, there's there's a beauty to some of this material that is non-existent in other recordings of that particular period. And that's what attracted me to the album then. And even though it does not work as a whole from the first track until the last track, what it makes up for it so dramatically and the tracks that do work. And I personally have never forgotten. So uh, it's a a beautimous thing. It's a beautimous thing. Leading into our playing of Wham, what would you like to... What would you like to uh, introduce with? What would I like to introduce with? Yeah, tell the folks. Uh, give give the folks an intro into Wham. If you're going to take the if you're going to take the beginnings of Robert Johnson, if you're going to take Sonny Terry, if you're going to take 
the street guitar players in Chicago playing through those little lamps. If you're going to think about the evolution and the rock and, and what Elvis began to provide and the passion, the desire, and the aggression, as you had mentioned before, roll it all up into a ball with gospel and the most explicit rock and roll sounds that were available up until that time. By that, I mean... And, and the locomotion of the, the motorcycle mechanic, Paul Bigsby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that the, that the mechanical elements of this are profound, but Lonnie Mack would have been a great guitarist on any instrument. If, if he came up before that invention... He still would have found a way. I hear you. I agree with you. Yeah. There's he, no denying it. He still would have but found a way. A, a lot of rock and roll history is tied to um, evolutions in uh, electronic development. But meanwhile, as you explore the electronic development, others like Bill Miller in the history of rock writes ultimately for consistency and depth of feeling. The best blue-eyed soul is defined by Lonnie Mac's ballads and virtually everything the Righteous Brothers recorded. Lonnie Mac wailing a soul ballad is as gutsy as any black gospel singer. So as you are defining the technology that allowed him to utilize the guitar in a different fashion, so many writers fixate on that voice and when I heard okay then I think this should be a double feature okay we're, we're gonna play well, we Ram and one of the cuts that you pick yeah gonna make it gonna make it a surprise but believe me the surprise will be will be in the telling of the tale uh, and you you'll understand everything that we are both attempting to state. So let's spin that little tune on Fraternity Label, a little label out of Cincinnati. Let's dust this baby off. Here's the Wham of that Memphis man, Lonnie Mack. Wham.
It's a thing of beauty, Bill. It's a thing of beauty. I mean, you really, you know, the, what also is astounding to me is after all these years, um, with recordings being remastered and defined, this version is a high-definition version, and it is amazing how brilliantly they were able to utilize this technology to produce these pieces. So short, so intense, and so sweet simultaneously. Yeah, it's a it's a killer. That's a killer cut. It's a killer, baby. It's a killer. Now we're going to throw on a little surprise for you. Lonnie Mack, gospel style. Off the time So discouraged I don't know What to do
said across the river We're gonna meet you right down here at So the years Lonnie Mack was, were, was active is 2000 and, uh, 1954 to 2004. And what year does he pass away, Bill? 2016. And do you have any information? Because all the information that I receive is that he died of natural causes at the age of 74 in Smithville. Right, he was born in 1941. Yeah. So... Every indicator is that he um, passed of natural causes, um, but he did some transplant benefits, leading me to believe that he had a transplant of some sort down the line. Mm. So he, it, it's 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 a little it's a, it's a little strange. So how would you sum him up? How would you sum him up? Well, I think I think you've created this wonderful dichotomy: the the aggressive style style trending guitar player with the old blue-eyed soul deep vocalist and we've created a full portrait of one of the great artists that America has produced I believe so I believe that we've covered the bases that we can in this amount of time and uh, painted the portrait of one of the greatest guitar players to ever live, certainly uh, beyond influential, Mr. Lonnie Mack. And, Mr. and I thank you for that. I thank you, Mr. Mesnick. I thank you, as always, for your expertise, for your insights, and for your experience, your strength, your hope, and uh, your love of the art that we try to identify with every episode of this show. You are the man, Bill Mesnick, Doing his thing, the bard. The show is a gift. The show is a me. gift, and Bill, you are you are a gift. You are a gift. You're, to me, you are. And the hopefully, bar- and hopefully, to our listeners, they feel that that gift as well. <laughs> I love you, man. I love you too. We will be back with another episode of Dig This. Check out Captain Billy's Magic Eight Ball on Dig This, and uh, you'll hear. A uh, recording from Bill's 8-track collection in which he provides a narrative uh, for each and uh, our episodes on Jackie Gleason. and uh, Next Tony, up is Elvis Tony and his gospel album, His Hand in Mine. And how relevant after this particular episode, right? Elvis, His Hand mm-hmm. in Mine. A 30-minute a, a LP that gives you every, every reason to identify Elvis Presley as one of the great singers uh, ever as well. 
So, ladies, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we thank you very much, and we hope that your verdict is a positive one, and we shall return with another episode of Dig This. See you soon, Mez. Bye-bye. Stack of 45. Stack of 45.